Welcome to The Bear and the Ball. I'm your host, Nick Webster. Delighted today to invite Cage Leitner to the show, the founding executive director of the Portland Community Football Club, the founder, CEO, and principal consultant of Quantum Gender. Cage, welcome to The Bear and the Ball. Thanks so much. Great to be here. Oh, it's, it's great to have you. And I've got to tell you first, my Portland story, and I don't know if you're aware of it. Back in 2012, I was lucky enough to be the assistant coach on a team called Cal FC. And in the US Open Cup, we drew the Portland Timbers in the third round of the tournament. We were an amateur team made up of, you know, some former professionals, collegiate players. And of course, we're playing the mighty Timbers at the stadium, there was probably about 15,000 people there. We had no chance. And incredibly, we pulled off the 1-0 victory in overtime. It was, without a doubt, the highlight of my coaching career. And I remember the best part about it was being at the, uh, I don't know what the end's called where all the fans are. Perhaps you can help me out with that one. At, at the, uh, the Timbers Army section. Timbers Army section, yeah. Yeah. and at the end of the game, we went and you know applauded because they were magnificent throughout, mm-hmm. and they started chanting "Beat Seattle" because we, <laughs> we had Seattle in the fourth round. Unfortunately, Seattle just absolutely thumped us five nothing, but it was a great experience. That's so cool, and uh, that's hearkening back to old days of the stadium. I mean, 2012, <clears throat> the stadium was smaller, less seats, and a different, I think it was Jeldwen Stadium at the time or even something before that. I mean, it's just had so many iterations and now it's such a cool place to watch football. I love it. So talk to me about the, the soccer scene in Portland because I think for many people seem to have forgotten the fact that Portland has always been a hotbed of the sport in this country. Yeah, it's true. It really goes back all the way into the 70s um, and the original... Um, leagues that were happening in Portland Timbers being one of the first and um, having such an amazing following from that time forward and that was back in a time when in this country as a whole soccer was starting to be seen as this unusual sport from over there (laughs) you know with all the memes and all the jokes Um, and I still I think some of that still remains to be true but yeah Portland's been soccer city for for years and years and years and so I think that foundation that bedrock is a great place for us to be um, holding our club here in the city of Portland and saying let's let's look at how we can do soccer even better and more inclusive and more accessible that's what we're really about so talk to me about your journey when when did you first start falling in love with this beautiful game and Mm -hmm. and how has it developed over the years well, I first fell in love with it when I was about six years old, but I didn't know that I was falling in love with it at the time because um, according to my parents, I don't remember this, I took the ball all the way down to the wrong end of the field and scored a goal and was just so excited that I scored scored a goal with all of the parents saying, no, 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 the wrong way. Um, I guess I was mortified at that time, and so I thought, I'll never play this sport again. And then luckily I have parents who pushed me back into it pretty gently. Uh, And I started again when I was eight, along with many, many other sports. And I fell in love with soccer as a kid because of how creative it is and how you as a player can just move and, and make a difference in the game in such an incredibly impactful way. And I figured that out as a pretty young kid of like, oh, if I move quickly over here, that defender can't follow me. And I was a real quick little kid. 
So I started to fall in love with that part of the game, and then I started coaching at 15. And when I started coaching, then I got to see both sides of it, right? The player side and the coaching side, because I was doing both. And then I started falling in love with the, the strategy and the chess match of it all and the, the intellect that comes behind it. And I've been hooked ever, ever since. since. And you bring up two, two really interesting points of view, you know, the playing side and the coaching side. And as a coach myself, I like to think that I have influence, but as a player, I know that it is and will always be a player sport. And it's, you know, I, it's, it's funny, I had a conversation with my high school kids, uh, in fact, last night, and we were talking about that very fact that American football is really a, a coach's sport. You know, the, the, the quarterback runs off to the sideline to get the play. Uh, in basketball, the point guard is looking over at the coach to see what the play is. Baseball is very much a, a, a coaching strategy sport. Mm-hmm. But yet soccer is this sport that you step across the white line and it doesn't matter as a coach. You can be yelling all kinds of instructions, <laughs> but by the time your instruction has reached the player, the, the whole situation is completely changed. So... Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it, it really makes me think. What is you know what is the role of the coach in the game, and and how much influence does the coach have on the player in the game? And then let's take that conversation further outside of the game. So I know I've, yeah. I've asked like I've asked five questions in one question. So try and work your way through that. Classic interview style, there, Nick. Um, so. I think the, the role, I was actually just saying this to a group of our kids um, on Monday night, the role of the coach is to provide the, the structure and the guidance in the training sessions and help the kids to learn the skills, but also to help them gain the confidence, gain, gain the ability to know that they can learn this skill and get better at it. And then game time, coaches should be pretty invisible in a lot of ways, right? There's still some things you can say. There's, I am a big proponent of your encouragement on the sideline is primarily what you should be doing. Your coaches should be hearing, or your players should be hearing from you. Anything that's coming out of your mouth sounds positive because all of it's sounding like wah, 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 wah to them anyways. So why not make it sound exciting and encouraging as opposed to negative and, and yelling? And so that's always been my approach as a coach and I think what, to your larger question of what is this doing for kids off of the pitch, well, if you're a coach that's stepping in and saying, I see you, I believe in you, I'm going to help you with these skills, I'm going to give you more tools, that applies to life. That applies to a, a kid now stepping into high school and, and saying, God, I don't know how to manage this situation with a teacher or a project or something like that. And you can have that moment to rely back on well I also didn't know how to deal with that opponent in that game and my coach said here's how you deal with it go on I trust you I'll be here if you fall gets me a little teary actually to think about the (laughs) the the role of a coach I just I'm so coaching is what I love to do and I don't get to do it right now because I'm running this this organization um, to its next level so that's really where I see coaching as such an incredible influence on kids' lives. And I think particularly in soccer, it's got that ability to be in partnership with your players. And I think it is different than other sports because we're not running a bunch of set plays. Yeah, we can have some set pieces, but 
what, 85% of the game is free flowing. And, and that's what I said to the kids on Monday night. I said, this is your game. This is a player's game. And, and what are the three things you're thinking about doing when you get the ball? Do I run with it? Do I pass? Do I shoot? That's up to you. Now to give kids that message at a young age, you have choice. You can make decisions. And I'm also talking to kids who are from low income and marginalized and underrepresented, undervalued communities. And I'm saying to them, and our coaching staff is saying to them, you have choice. We're gonna help you figure out how to make those choices. That's huge, that's impactful. You said you were 15 when you first started coaching. And I think I started when I was 23 and I can, honestly say looking back some of the things I did horrific I really didn't know didn't know my ass from my head (laughs) as a 15 year old you're not much older than some of the players you're coaching how did you how did you find yourself as a coach and how did you how did you manage to um pull off that that leadership component that you're Mm. immediately thrown into because I, regardless of, of of your players' ages, and I've you know I've I've coached players who are older than me, they're still looking at you as coach. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, when I started when I was fifteen, it was in summer programming, so it was in like summer camps, right? That I had been playing in as a player, and I and I really wanted to continue on in that summer camp, and they wouldn't keep me on as a player, but my mom convinced them to hire me as a junior coach. She's she's a force to be reckoned with. So. So it started out there. So that's a little bit of an easier entrance in, right? Summer kind of kick around. But at 17, I had I was my own. I had a, my own team, my own rec team of 15-year-olds coaching girls. Um, it's also important for everyone to know that I'm a transgender person. So I was assigned the sex of female at birth. I grew up playing this game as a girl, being seen as a girl, being told a lot of things about how I should or should not play. And so as a 17-year-old girl head coach coaching 15-year-old girls with my experience of being discriminated against and bullied and teased because I didn't fit into all the gender norms, I think all of those aspects of me is what allowed me to step into that space with those players and lead from the place of, let's do this together. I'm not the authority. I have some, some ideas, some skills. I've got a little more knowledge than you do. I've been around the game a little bit longer but let's work together to figure out how we want to get this team forward because I was coming from the perspective of everybody's got their own story. Everybody brings their own special, unique gifts and skills to this game and to their life. Who am I to say this is how it should happen? And that's how I lead. That's how I continue to lead as somebody who's now, you know, well into my 40s and running my own organization for the last decade and doing a lot of really hard leadership, it's still from that place of we are partners and let's let's figure out this together. Talk to me about the Portland Community Football Club, the the organization that you've started. Where where was the genesis of this and how has it developed over the years? The genesis was from, I just saw an issue. I just saw a problem and a need uh, right here in the the city that I live in, in Portland. I was coaching recreational soccer and primarily coaching a lot of white upper income kids that, you know, that's kind of the standard who get access to even recreational soccer in the city. But I was working in after school programs on kind of the outskirts of the city during the day 
working with kids from communities of color, from low-income communities, and we would play soccer every day. And I was their soccer teacher in that after-school program. And so one day I'm waiting for my rec team to show up on the weekend, and I'm looking around the field and I'm saying to myself, where are those kids? Where are those kids that I've been working with on the in the after-school programs during the week who are really good at this sport, who love it just like nobody else, it's part of their family structure, why aren't they here? And it all started to coalesce in my mind right in that moment. And I was on the sidelines and wrote out on a piece of paper an idea for a club that has the same structure as any other club, multiple teams, you know, we can go play in tournaments, we train twice a week, but we don't charge hardly anything, right? At the time it was like, let's just charge nothing when we started provide all the uniforms for free. They need cleats, let's make sure we can get them for them. Like all of the areas where there is so many barriers that come up for kids in the current pay to play system, I just said, well, let's do it differently. Let's do it the exact opposite. That was 10 years ago. That was 2013 that we started and it has grown from 75 kids to almost 250 kids now. Our, you know, our budget went from like $30,000 to now about a half a million. Um, and our biggest progression of change has happened just in the last three years as we've added in a family services program. And that means we're providing food for families through our food pantry, we're doing wraparound services, we're helping families get connected to external social services because we are opening our doors through this game to people who are experiencing all kinds of societal oppression and are managing our, their lives through other systems. And I saw that as a social worker, that's my, my trained background is in social work. I saw how those systems are so impactful negatively on people's lives, they're so hard to navigate, they're so demoralizing, they're so undervaluing of people's dignity. I saw that we could use a soccer club as a platform to connect people to us and say, we're here to help you navigate through all these systems. We're like ambassadors for our families. That's how I see our work. But it wasn't until we added in that layer that we were able to start getting more funding. As just a soccer club trying to do things totally different in the pay-to-play space, we couldn't get much attention, right? We couldn't get the kind of larger funding we needed from foundations and donors and things. And now that we have basically two programs, soccer program, family services program, now we're getting some more attention of, oh, you're doing something really different in the soccer space and you're actually looking at the whole athlete. And I think that's what's really missing in where the game is trying to move to in making it accessible is that you can give a kid a scholarship in a larger club. It's probably not gonna cover enough, right? Unless they're getting a full ride because they're really, really good. But how are they getting to games? and who's bringing them to those games. And when they look around on the field, are they seeing other kids like them? Or are they feeling like, oh, I'm, I'm the scholarship kid. So all of those issues, I think, are what we're trying to approach from the ground up and say, let's not have a system where we're bringing kids into it through scholarships. Let's just create a liberated system where there's no barriers. And that's how the Liberate Sports campaign is, is getting launched. And I can get into that in a minute. But, that was my long answer to your many questions. <laughs> Fantastic, yeah, and I knew it would take a, took, take a while. Um, you know, one of my dreams as, of, of chair of, of Cal South is to make soccer completely affordable um, mm -hmm. and, and, to, and to 
really kick down these barriers. I, I'm I'm so sick and tired of, of these clubs charging kids four, five, six, seven, eight thousand dollars a year. To me, that is complete and utter madness. And it's the only country in the world that does it. And mm-hmm. don't get me wrong, I love America. Okay, uh, and I and and the the capitalist nature of America is is fantastic, and we could be going off in some other weird direction. But I'm going to try and stay on the soccer. Um, it's related. Yes, it, it certainly is. Um, you know, soccer traditionally, since I've been involved, is a you know middle to upper class sport, white sport. Um, but in my experiences, you know, many of the best players are you know. Uh, Hispanic or foreign mm-hmm. um, they're not like us mm-hmm. and to create to create those programs where these kids do feel welcome mm-hmm. do feel part of uh, uh, something bigger than themselves mm-hmm. how do we how do we break down these price barriers because I, I you know I get that people want to make money but at the same time, it really hurts me that we're making money off kids. Oh, that doesn't seem right. So how, how, how can we change that mentality where we can look at children not as a financial resource, but as, as, a, as a conduit to making life better? Yeah. Well, um, the best way to answer that question is for everyone to go watch the Showtime episode that we're in as a documentary series that just landed because uh, Trevor Noah uh, narrates this documentary series. We're in episode two that talks about this problem. And I'm bringing that up because it just dropped. So it's really fresh in my mind of how this narration talked about capitalism, the way capitalism works in this country and the way that it's impacting our medical system, our healthcare, our, our education, our food, all of those big systems. And the, um, the direction of the narration that Trevor Noah takes in talking about access to soccer is soccer is a connector of more than any sport, I would say, in the entire world, right? It connects people, it brings people together, it can solve social issues, and he, there's evidence of that. And so, the way that you make soccer more accessible in the United States is that you have government support for it, you have larger capitalism-related um, support, corporations, you know, foundations, places where there are large amounts of wealth, the professional teams being more of a direct support, not just to their academy systems, but to their local community systems. There is so much money in our capitalistic society that is, that is available to solve this problem, but it's been a, a problem that's been growing and growing and growing to almost an unwieldy place over the last three, four decades that it needs to be completely flipped on its head and be taken from the ground up as opposed to the top down. And that's what we're trying to do, and that's what we've been doing for a decade is saying, let's work from the place of who's not getting invited, who's not getting access, let's give them the access first, make it accessible there, and then grow and grow and grow the model and the, and the brand of inclusivity and get the attention of those larger capitalistic entities. That's our goal. And that's our goal through Liberate Sports Campaign is to say we're looking at the structure of capitalism essentially and how it has um, negatively impacted a global sport that is accessible all around the world. And United States, 
we've got the opportunity. We've got the World Cup coming to our front doors in 2026. This is the chance to have way more investment in clubs like us that are showing a, a completely different model. And if we start to have a model that looks like Portland Community Football Club in other parts of the country, then we start to look like a country that can find the talent that's hidden, that's hiding in those you know, apartment building parking lots where they're just kicking the ball against the wall. That's where kids are playing and loving this sport to the ends of their life. Um, and we're not investing in that. We're investing in, we being the capitalistic society, is investing in the status quo of what got developed in the 70s because there was no structure for soccer in this country in the 70s. So capitalism filled the void and parents started, you know, figuring out, well, who's going to coach my kid? I don't know anything about this sport. Oh, okay, I'll bring somebody in, you know, to, to teach my kid all of these fundamentals of the sport. That's what started it. That's what started this snowball of a pay to play system. And I just simply said, I can't stand by and watch that happen. And I'm, I'm in your same shoes, Nick. It, it, it's so challenging for me to accept that this is how soccer is, is functioning in this country when I see it functioning in other countries in a completely different way. And you get players like Lionel Messi and Marta and, you know, players who deserve to be on the world stage because their country invests in their children playing this, that sport. You mentioned the P word parents um <laughs> parents eh? can't live with them can't live without them i know and i'm a new um, parent a too parent too yeah congratulations Thanks. Thanks. uh parent as well 16 year old boy quite a good little player himself um it's interesting this this parent thing the parents are almost uh, the drivers and you made a great point that there there was there was no one to fill that space mm-hmm Parents require education because right now, and I shouldn't even be saying this out loud, but right now, you know, clubs and technical directors are selling parents this false bill of goods about what they're trying to do to help their kids get to the next level, the college scholarship, the pros. Yeah. When we know that the percentage of players that goes to the next level is 0.01 percent it's 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 minute how can we and and this is a big question and there's no way we can ever answer it but i love asking it i love big questions okay how can we convince parents that this game is just so beautiful and that it should be just played for fun and you don't have to be striving for the next level. The next level will find you if you are good enough. And mm-hmm. to and to convince parents that they no longer need to spend thousands upon thousands of dollars to play soccer. They don't need to do this and and travel. I have I, I've got my team, um, this downtown team. They went to Orlando last weekend. Orlando for a couple of league games. Oh my God, Cage. We're based in LA. We had to travel to Orlando to play three games of soccer. Mm-hmm. That is madness. Madness. <laughs> madness. Madness. And so and, how do and, we how do we educate parents and 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 stop them from getting into the arms, the industrial arms race of soccer? Mm-hmm. Well, it is a big question and I think it's a hard one to answer succinctly here, but 
um, I think there's multiple layers to it. I think one of the layers is the more parents can get involved in the game themselves somehow. Maybe that's through some coaching, but coaching with some education behind it, not just throwing down cones. Maybe they get out and play a little bit and learn how fun it is. We, we kind of miss that aspect of like adults can have fun too. That's a really important part. Um, I see in our club what we use is the social aspect of soccer to reinforce the fun. We have potlucks, we have summer barbecues, we get everybody together and we are a, we are a, a family as a club. And when you have that environment, that doesn't mean you're not still striving for great, for great play, but you're also infusing this energy and this ethos and this environment of community and fun and connection. And that can be just as rewarding as holding up a trophy in some ways. And that um, environment of, of connection is missing from these bigger clubs. One, because they're so big, sometimes it's like, you know, thousands and thousands of kids. But that's also just not baked into the culture of the club. The culture of the club is, I'm here with my team, I go and practice here, I have maybe only this team that I ever interact with, and we don't really build into the culture of, of clubs here in the United States what is built into the culture of football around the world, which is, let's go knock a ball around, I don't speak the same language as you, I don't have the same skin color as you, doesn't matter. Let's go have fun and knock a ball around. That's what's missing from the, the structure of the pay-to-play system here because it's gotten so serious, so rigid, so competitive, so kind of robotic almost in its nature of, um, of, of player development that it's missing that fun for the, for the parents. I talk to parents who are friends of mine who have kids in, in these larger clubs and they're just like, oh, I got to travel from the east side of the city to the west side and I got to go down to, you know, five hours south of here for this weekend or I got to fly to, you know, wherever. Who's having fun there? Um, so I think there's just a shift in perspective that needs to happen, but the shift also has to happen with the, the recognition that we've kind of dug our own grave here with the pay-to-play system that there's so much money being funneled into it. How do you reverse that within the existing system? You reverse it by looking to the other funding sources and stop looking at the parents as the funding source. Well, trying to reverse it is going to make you like public enemy number one. That is for sure. <laughs> um, and, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling the heat myself as, you know, chair of Cal South, uh, you know, 150,000 kids, etc. Um, trying to convince technical directors not to pay coaches $60,000 a year anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, the, the great example I have, I'm very good friends with uh, a gentleman who is the head of um, the youth side of Bournemouth Football Club. Mm-hmm. A Premier League team, mm-hmm. and I said, Bruce, what do you, what do you pay your coaches? And he goes, oh, they're lucky if they get you know thirty pounds a session. You know, it's fifty dollars. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, coaches in this country wouldn't get, wouldn't even get out of bed for fifty dollars, and 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 we're talking about Premier League coaches yeah. here. Yeah. I mean, it's 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 well, just absolutely madness. Nick, I have a qu- I have a question have for a you question actually, about, actually that. about that. What is for a coach that's earning thirty fifty pounds a session for Bournemouth? What are they getting aside from being paid? They're getting the, the facility to be coaching at. They're getting the, the coaching education for them to get to that level, to be able to coach at that level. 
Um, I'm assuming they're not coaching seven days a week at, you know, and traveling all over the country. The system that they have to coach within isn't so onerous that it requires all of that pay. It's something that they can do along with having maybe another job or something like that. So I think there's some structure. Again, it comes back to how we've, we've formulated the structure of pay to play. And we have paid coaches at our club but they're paid a small stipend. They all work other jobs and we pay some coaches a little bit more to take on more of a mentorship role and really focus on the social emotional um, development of our players and become mentors to other coaches as well. And they work other jobs. But, but I think my, my, I want to clarify because I don't want to be at public enemy number one. I want to clarify that I think by re what I mean by reversing the system is that we are still going to have a system where people have to get paid to coach this game in the United States. I don't think that's going to go away. But can we restructure where that money comes from? Can we get investment from larger entities, corporations, foundations, government, um, governing bodies, state associations? Can there be some more sharing of the, the capitalistic structure where we're really trying to flip capitalism on its head in some ways, right? And that's, and, and back to my point about the Showtime documentary series, that's the very last statement that's made of this episode that we're in is that if soccer can become a sport that is more accessible in this country, it has the possibility of healing all these many ails that we have in this country of the lack of access in lots of systems, because it's got the ability to show a model of how we change our perspective on who gets access and who's funding that access. And I think that's a really powerful message for this game. Last question for you, and you mentioned the word model. How can, how can people look at Portland and your club and, and copy your model? Because it, it, sounds, it sounds to me like, for me, listening to you, it's utopia. You know, this, this, this is, this is the model that I want every club that's mm -hmm. ever founded from now on to follow. So mm -hmm. is your model accessible? Can people go, ah, this is exactly how I want to do it. Is there a step, step-by-step -step guide or are people fumbling around in the dark kind of thing? You know, I, I wish that I could say there was an easy step-by-step -step guide. It's part of what the Liberate Sports campaign is intended to do is to start bringing, more resources to us for the, the work that we're doing so that we can start to build out something that's replicable. Not necessarily that it looks exactly like PCFC in LA, for example, but that we're showing, here's how you can connect the, the networks, find the funding, build a structure, build an environment of a, a soccer club and potentially another sport, a volleyball club, a swimming, a tennis. There's lots of issues in lots of sports. So the replication of exactly what we're doing is hard to replicate in another city because every city and every community is so different. But the ethos of what we're doing, the connection with community, the, the value that we're placing in undervalued communities, the way we're building from the ground up, that's the messaging we want to be able to bring to the larger um, system of pay to play. But we can't do that unless we're getting the funding to keep ourselves stable and going. Do you know what I mean? So it's this first thing of let's get PCFC to a level that I can hire more staff. I can be a more, have a more stable organization. I've got three staff right now. 
so that we can then be the model to say, this is how it can be done elsewhere, and we can start to change those systems. And that's why I started this club. I ultimately wanted to change systems. Cage, how can listeners of The Bear and the Ball get in touch with you, ask you questions, find out more about PCFC? Uh, Portland Community Football Club is an easy one to Google search. We're the only ones out there. Um, we're all over social media, PCFC, soccer, and you can get in, in touch with us through any of those. We're always looking for donations. If there's anyone out there who's I've pulled at their heartstrings for how much we're needing our, our funding to be coming in, we'd love to get more people donating. We have people from all over the country that donate to us that see that our model is um, is one to be to be paid attention to, and so love to have that end of the se- end of the year push for fundraising. Got to make that pitch. <laughs> Cage Lightner, PCFC. Thank you so much for joining the Bear and the Ball. And for more on Cal South, please visit us on Facebook, on Instagram, on CalSouth.com. I am your host Nick Webster, and we'll see you on the pitch real soon. <laughs>